preaching of God's Word is found in Revelation chapter 1, and there particularly at verse 5. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. And though there are many things in the book of Revelation that demand earnest study and comparing Scripture with Scripture, we ought never to lose sight of the preeminent thing of this book is stated so simply in the opening line, that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's by Jesus Christ, and it's of Jesus Christ. And we see that as John writes this first chapter, we come then to verse 5. For the sake of some context here, verses 4 through 6. Revelation 1, verses 4 to 6. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace unto you and peace from Him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto Him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in His own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. And to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You notice these verses set before us a benediction. So verse 4, grace be unto you in peace. And this from God. Notice from Him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which is a way of speaking of the Holy Spirit. And then it fixes upon the Lord Jesus Himself and from Jesus Christ. You'll notice so much spoken of Him in verse 5. You can see something of the three offices of Christ. He's the faithful witness, so He's a prophet. You can see that He is indeed the Prince of the kings of the earth. He's the King. He's also, and there's more spoken of this in this verse, He's also our great priest unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. And it would do well for us to think on all of these, but we wish to focus our attention particularly on that last part of verse 5. Unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Now, the impact of this verse will depend much upon what you and I think of our sins. And so, of course, men think little of their sins until they don't. Now, this will be the experience of every man, woman, and child. There will be an experience, sooner or later, where men who have laughed and mocked at sin, who have thought so little of their sins, will be brought to be thinking, rightly that this is a great shame and a most unendurable misery. It will either happen in this life or it will happen everlastingly in the life to come. Men think little of their sins until they don't. In this life, when once the weight, the horror, the burden, the shame, the guilt, the condemnation, all wrapped up and bound up, not in sin, 
But in our sins, when that hits us, then the one thing that looms large is sin. We can't rightly measure it any longer. We can't rightly characterize it any longer. No word is too strong to be used. Not against sin, but against our sin. You think for a moment how the woman coming after Christ hears from Christ that He's not come for the dogs. She doesn't quibble with that. She owns it. In our world, which is so ready to play the victim and to cry out against any difficult word, howsoever spoken, we have little thought of thinking much about our sins. But when once the Spirit works, who among other things was sent to convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, and when He works mightily and makes us to see how wicked our sins are, then it is that we see nothing can be overstated about our sins. Apart from one. And that is that they cannot be pardoned. This is a word that the Scriptures do not permit because we have before us the One who is able to cleanse us from the fullness of our sins. In one sense, the reality and the largeness of our sins remains even into heaven. Because throughout this book, little pictures of heaven will be given. And though the saints in heaven are no longer burdened by their sins, yet they never forget the fact that it is Christ who has forgiven us our sins. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, the church in heaven will say. And in this life, we have a mixture of both the shame of our sins still really before us and the joy of Christ forgiving our sins increasingly weighing upon us. Well, the text provides us a tremendous help if we think truly about our sins. Because if we don't, well, we'll actually quibble with the verse. And we'll say, well, what is this about His washing us of our sins? Because in fact, I've actually done a fair bit myself to make myself presentable unto God. Now, maybe no one would say that in so many words, but in actuality of action and carriage and posture and intention, this is what the unregenerate man thinks. He thinks that by my tears, by my improvement, by my self-reform, by my resolutions, by my attendance upon right things, that I've actually done something to cleanse me, myself, and to present myself before the Lord. But the one who is Spirit-taught in accordance to the Word realizes that even our righteousnesses are all as what? but rags of uncleanness. It is as filth before the Lord. And so it binds us to look unto another one to cleanse us. And Here is the great news for the sin-burdened soul. This is precisely what Christ does. Now notice the text in its words, unto Him, this is of Jesus Christ, introduced in verse 5, that loved us, 
Now that's what's the foundation for what follows. He loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. It tells us what He did and how He did it. So the death of Christ, which is here presented by His own blood, is that which cleanses us of the filth of our sins, which we wish to consider in three things this morning. Firstly, our filth. Secondly, our cleansing. And thirdly, Christ's love. Now we've mentioned already the reality that sins are a burden. But with reference to the first of our points, our filth, you have to think through the notion of being washed. To be washed necessarily implies that there is filth, uncleanness. There's something that needs to be washed. So a parent may say to his child, you know, we're about to eat, wash your hands. And the child says, well, I've just washed my hands. And they're dripping with water and it's evident that there's soap suds in the sink. The parent doesn't go and say, well, wash them again. They're clean. But if the child comes in and says, I washed my hands two hours ago. The parent says, well, it's time to wash them again. Why? Because it's picked up things that need to be washed from us. And this is something that is helpful as we think about being washed by Christ. What is the filth? Well, notice what's being washed. He's washing us from our sins. Which presents to us that sin is that moral and spiritual filth. There are things in this life increasingly that used to disgust previous generations. And yet, in our day, become celebrated. And so it won't surprise us when there are unspeakable things celebrated in immoral ways that previous generations, even unconverted people, would have looked upon and say that is repulsive. It actually strikes the core of my being as something that is so monstrous, so out of what is acceptable, that it makes me sick. And now things that are iniquitous parade themselves with celebration. And we cannot help but acknowledge that we ourselves have lost a sense of how filthy sin is. But brethren, we ought to see that sin is not only filthy in its most extreme and heinous forms. It is all sin which is indeed repulsive and repugnant and indeed stains us in such a way that we are unpresentable to God. So God is, as the prophet says, of purer eyes than to look upon sin. This presents a great problem for us. Because we have sinned. We're guilty in Adam. We're likewise guilty by our own many actions. And this presents us as an unclean thing. Brethren, it can make us to blush the way that Scriptures speak about sin at times. It speaks of um, the uncleanness of a woman set apart. And what's that to make us sense? But who would think that they want that which was used for the uncleanness of a woman? 
And we say, that's too much for me. I don't want to talk about it. I don't even want to think about it. And yet God presents it to us in His Word to make us face the fact that that is how vile our sins are to Him. It's not embarrassing to think about this beyond the fact that that's what our sins are like in the sight of God. Foul, vile, repulsive, disgusting. He desires to cast it off. He doesn't present it. He certainly doesn't parade it. He doesn't say, look and be pleased with yourselves. He says, this is utterly repugnant to me. And yet for a moment, brethren, think, how often have we smiled at our sins? How often have we, as it were, taken the rags of foulness and brought them to our noses to waft in what pleased us and which would cause the Lord to vomit out His wrath against us, and yet we drink it in and love to play it over in our minds and play with it in our thoughts and find our hearts tittle away with wicked pleasure over it. What does this tell us? But that left to ourselves, we are a foul thing. You see, it's not just the sins that are foul, as if they're extraneous from us and extrinsic from us and outside of us. This is, of course, why we acknowledge both the sins, but also the pollution of the sinner. Those sins which we have committed, which are foul in the sight of God, come forth out of the heart of man. The words that we've spoken, the thoughts that we've thought, the actions that we've performed, all of these things come from a vile and corrupt nature such that cannot be washed and cleansed by our own actions. Because what does filth do to other filth? It may spread it around. It may move it here and there. But it can never actually cleanse it. So you think you step in something that's filthy. You don't find the thing you stepped in and use that to wash your shoe. But that's what sinners try to do in dealing with themselves. They try with one hand filthy to cleanse the other hand that's filthy. And it is a vain enterprise that will never bring about any cleansing. Brethren, you must face, we must face, the reality of the vileness of our sins. Scriptures spare no thoughts, no words to paint the picture of how repugnant it is in the sight of God. This is why when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and His perfect, searching, pristine purity with majesty displayed, that He cannot help but turn back and say, woe is me, I'm undone. Why? Think of the language. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. My speech is foul. I am undone before this holy God. If that's what makes Isaiah undone, what of all of the other things that we have so willingly participated in? Brethren, This is heavy enough in itself, but notice the language of the text that it's not that He washed us from sins, 
but from our sins. It's an interesting academic exercise, isn't it? To look at others and say, well, they've got that out of sword. And look at her, him and her. And I wonder how their children are doing that. And why is the wife this way with that husband? And why is the husband that way with this wife? And why is that worker this way toward their boss? And why don't they fix it up and so on? And oh, how excellent we are at analyzing the sins of others. Because it's outside of us. And we can be quite contented to be disgusted with others and indeed to judge them as hypocrites who fail to realize that we ourselves have such a filth that belongs to no one other than we ourselves. It is ours. This filth which is before us is not the filth of another's doing, but it's our own doing. So the Scriptures testify to us so searchingly. As God says in Hosea, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. Another hasn't done it. It's not the fault of victimization. It's not the fault of multiple generations that have systemically come against you. It's not the fault of your worker, your co-worker, your boss who hasn't looked and provided you these things. It's not the fault of your husband, your wife, your child, your parents. It's not the fault of the economy. It's not the fault of the government. It's not the fault of your neighborhood. It's not the fault of anything else. Israel, you've destroyed yourself. The filth is yours. The guilt is yours. The corruption is yours. And yes, the condemnation is yours. And yet we love to live in a world that shirks that and puts it upon another. Well, I'd be a better wife if my husband were more loving. Well, I'd be a better husband if my wife were more thoughtful. Well, I'd be a better worker if my boss acknowledged my diligence. Well, I'd be a more faithful citizen if the government got his job in order. Well, I'd be a better church member if the pastor thought of me this way. I'd be a better pastor if the people thought that way. All of these things are us shirking the responsibility to others and loving to live in the world of others' faults. But the thing that gets robbed from us in that is never to know the joy of this passage. Because what happens if others are at fault and they're forgiven? Well, they have joy. But we sit in our filth. We have to come to terms with this. The filth is not in general only. There is a general, of course, corruption to mankind. Certainly there is the imputation of Adam's first sin. And there is the corruption of our whole nature which is common to all man. But brethren, notice the language. It is our sins which is in the forefront of the mind. The filth has a name on it. And the name is yours. And until you and I come to terms with that, we'll never come to terms with the rich blessings provided us in this passage. Notice then, secondly, our cleansing. And it's so simply set forth. He washed us from our own sins in His own blood. The believer, John among them, was one, and we with them, are those who are forgiven. We are those 
who are cleansed. The filth is ours, but there's a testimony that they have been washed. Now, this is a theme throughout the Scriptures quite clear. You can look how in Zechariah 13, a great prophecy is held forth. Of course, we considered some of this with reference to the previous chapter, chapter 12, and how there is the considering of Christ crucified, Him whom we pierced, and how this brings about a mourning and a sorrowing in our souls with much bitterness. But this bleeds into chapter 13, verse 1, in that day. Brethren, note this connection. The sorrowing over our sins. The repugnancy of our sins and the shame which we see then put upon Christ and brings us low on ourselves in that day. In that day of mourning. In that day of owning their fault. In that day of repenting. In that day of sorrowing. There shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for what? For uncleanness. In that day when Christ is pierced through and in that day when we are brought by the Lord's work to see something, never all, but something of the vileness of our own sins, there is this testimony that a fountain is opened for cleansing of sin and uncleanness. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say there's a fountain open for mistakes. There's not a fountain open for, oh, I'm sorry. There's a fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Guilt, corruption, depravity. The very words that the world has no time for. So soon as you go to someone and say, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you, it's almost embedded in man to say, well, don't say it that way. That's a little too much, don't you think? You know, we're just human. We make mistakes. And we say, no, no, you don't understand. Yes, there are mistakes, but what I did was criminal in the sight of God. My tones, my words, my actions, my inactions were sinful. Brethren, remember this. I mean, this has recourse, of course, and instruction in our relationships, man with man, wife with husband, husband with wife, church member with church member, and so on. We don't apologize for mistakes. We ask forgiveness for sin. And this is what is before us here. We don't go to God and say, you know, I made a big mistake. We go to God and say, I am repugnant in your sight and in mine. Because sin is unspeakably evil. The way in which your word speaks of sin makes it undeniably clear that words fail me to speak rightly of sin. But brethren, so soon as we come to that, you see the world hesitates and fights against it because the world knows that there's no adequate provision in the world to deal with this kind of truth. But the one who has seen Christ crucified realizes However real my filth is, my immorality, my guilt, my profanity, my corruption is, that Christ's blood is able to cleanse me truly, fully of my sin. 
I don't need to play this card game where I'm bluffing and doing these kinds of things, where I bring down the reality of what sin is in order to build up some false confidence that now it can be dealt with. No. I go headstrong into it, acknowledging all that God's Word says about it with the utter confidence that the fountain open is able to cleanse me of it all. And this is precisely what our text says. Unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins. Not some of our sins. Not the easy sins. Not the little sins. Not those sins which are, you know, the common lot of all mankind. But whatever our sins are, He who loved us washed us from them. We saw it in Ezekiel 36 that He will sprinkle clean water upon us and cleanse us from all uncleanness. Again and again, the Scriptures are full in this testimony. Howsoever filthy and vile we are in our sins, our filth and vileness can't outdo the cleansing of God through Jesus Christ. Notice, they have been washed by Christ. It's not just that We've been washed, but it's unto Him who washed us. There's an acknowledgement that we're not the ones who wash ourselves. There's a fountain open, and yes, we as it were come and we plunge ourselves in, but it's Christ who must wash us. The whole imagery of baptism, the pouring of water upon one being baptized in accordance to the institution of the Lord's Word. We see this. This is being given to us. We don't baptize ourselves. We're baptized. This outward sign and seal of cleansing is something applied to us. And it's a testimony, a memorial for us to remember. I can't cleanse myself. I can't make myself right. I can't make myself presentable. We come in from a long day at work or play or whatever else, and we have an event to go to, and someone says, go clean yourself up. We know right away what to do. But with reference to this great event of coming to do with the living God, we find ourselves filthy, and we don't have the ability to cleanse ourselves. But Christ does. Moreover, as we'll see through His cross, He has. Notice our cleansing is being washed by Christ, but it speaks specifically of the agency that Christ uses to wash us. It is in His own blood. Each one of those words, most precious. It's not in blood only. We ought to remember the preciousness of this word blood, because by blood is meant the evidence of His death. That Christ died. And that on the cross. When was it that He shed His blood? Most clearly and fully it was on the cross. As there He was nailed to the cross and made a curse for us. Think of that. He's made a curse. It's by His cursedness that we become cleansed. His death. Notice it's not just by blood, but it's by His blood. It's 
His blood, Christ's blood, Jesus Christ, who's the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. And later, as he will say to John, it is he who is, verse 17, the first and the last, he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. It is this one who shed his blood. It is this one who undertook for us. And it is, to be clear, it is his own blood. He doesn't take a purchased amount of blood from something else. He doesn't take the blood of sacrifices, bulls and goats and other animals. But as Hebrews says so clearly, it was by his own blood that he made atonement for our sins. So all of the filth, All of the wickedness is answered by the cleansing that comes by the death of Christ on our behalf. And brethren, when you rightly start to think as difficult as it is of your own filth and how nearly overwhelming it is unto the end of our life that we would perish did the Lord not sustain us in thinking about it, And yet, so soon as we bring to our attention the death of Christ has satisfied the wrath of God. The death of Christ has removed from us the wrath of God. The death of Christ has cleansed us from our own sins. Notice, the sins are ours. The blood is His. And yet, we're the ones washed. His blood cleanses us. How is it that His blood cleanses us? Well, it's not through some physical agency as if we take up a vial of blood and rub it upon our bodies. This is part of the superstition of some who have paraded what they claim to be drops of blood or stained garments of physical blood. We ought to remember that there would have been soldiers who were largely doused in the blood of Christ and yet were without any cleansing. It's not the physical application of His blood to our bodies. It's not the superstitious taking up of some garment supposedly stained by the blood of Christ. It's His blood applied to our account and received by faith that cleanses us. This is why the Scriptures spare no language, no words regarding the same. And so you think of how in uh, sort of a parallel way, Paul speaks of this in the book of Romans. In chapter 3, when it testifies of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and that He's gone through and made us to understand that we are a vile people. You cannot read through chapter 3, the opening part, with the application to ourselves and not realize our case is hopeless in ourselves. In fact, in verse 19, we're told that this is done that all the world may become guilty before God. But then... Paul set this up in the inspiration of God's Word, of course, by His Spirit. That we would see, verse 21, the righteousness of God without that is apart from the law is manifested. What is it? Verse 22, the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. Verse 24, justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth 
to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. You see, the sacrifice which satisfies and settles our account with God is a blood which must be received by faith. It's not that we purchase it with tears, though there are tears often shed in the consideration of Christ. It's not that we purchase it with our vows and our reforms and other such things. It's that we're cleansed by the blood received by faith, trusting it, looking to it, saying, that is my cleansing. The fountain which is opened cleanses, and I trust that fountain to do so unto me. Brethren, what this means is, when we rightly understand this truth, the blood of Christ makes it so that the one who believes upon Christ is no longer seen as vile in the sight of God. The blood of Christ makes it so that the one who is cleansed by faith in the blood of Christ is now presentable to the enjoyment of God. And so you see a little image of it when Isaiah cries out, Woe am I, woe is me. And then the Lord sends an angel with a coal from off the altar and cleanses his mouth. And here we have the blood of Christ applied to us which cleanses us. That we now are presentable to Him. We've had a little bit of an insight with this in Ephesians chapter 5 with reference to last night when we see that Christ gave Himself for the bride. To what end? That He might sanctify and cleanse it. Christ is cleansing us by His work in having given Himself for us. So what this does is it presents two things to us, neither of which is to be lessened. It provides us a clear sight of the greatness of our sins, but it provides us as well a great sight of the greater Savior. That as we understand how great our sins are, we start to see before us a mountain range. Because at one point we thought it was this foothill. And then we mature and we say, no, no, it's this peak. And then we mature and say, no, no, it's that peak. And we start to say, my sins are far larger than I realized. And yet, we look up and we see the all-surpassing excellency of the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus and the sacrifice which looms large above all of the heights and peaks of our rebellion. The blood of Christ Jesus overcoming all that we have done. Martin Luther said that in one sense, Jesus Christ was the most guilty man ever. The biggest sinner ever there was. We may be struggling with that at first, but he clarifies to say not by experience in the least, but by the fact that not only all of your sins, known and unknown, but all of my sins, known and unknown, all of His people's sins throughout all generations, known and unknown, were heaped upon Christ. We start to see great promises open to us that the Lord has laid help upon a strong one. Whose shoulders can bear the burden of one sin before the wrath of God, the judgment of God? Christ's can. Whose shoulders can bear all of my sins before the justice of God? Christ's can. 
whose shoulders can bear all of the sins of all of His chosen ones throughout all generations to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. Christ's can. And more than that, Christ's have. He has, notice the language, washed us. It's done. It's applied. And in Christ, we are clean. Lastly, notice Christ's love. We see here as well the reason that Christ so cleansed us. He cleansed us because He loved us. Unto Him that loved us and washed us. His love is first. His washing follows. His love doesn't respond to our felt need. His love precedes our felt need. His love is such that it is the fountain of the fountain, we can say. The fountain of cleansing actually flows from a fountain of love. A love He had for us. What is it that He did? He loved us. What is it this love brought Him to do? To die for us. To wash us in His own blood. When was this love? It was before we were washed. Before He had died. Indeed, this is true of each person of the blessed Godhead. And so the Father gives His Son in love. The Son comes in love. The Spirit applies in love. In the council of eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit had entered into this holy and most gracious redeeming covenant that the people upon whom God had set His love should be forgiven by the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Brethren, what this truth opens to us is not merely familiar platitudes, but actually provides us spiritual help in our own wrestlings with our own sins. Because is it not the case when we actually deal honestly with our sins, we say, how could God love us? Or perhaps we think in a different way and we say, I can't think about my sins because I'll lose assurance. Or I'll lose joy. Or I'll lose gladness. Or I'll lose the sense of peace with God and Christ. When in fact, when we understand that God's love is far superior to our sins because of His provision of Jesus Christ for us, when we see that activity that has sprung from His love, we're able to face our sins in their fullness. Not because of some ability we ourselves have, but because of the assurance that Christ was given out of love. Yea, that He Himself loved us and gave Himself for us. So you go back to Matthew 27 or any other Gospel account and you see all of the shameful things. And yet we have to realize that every detail of His suffering is a suffering He voluntarily and lovingly agreed to take up. And that because of love to not only His Father, but to His Bride. He loved His people. 
And when he hears those ridiculing and shameful uh, testimonies of an unbelieving people, he saved others himself he cannot save. What is it that keeps him upon the cross but his love to his people that he's saving? Yes, he had raised others before. Yes, he had restored others before. But he hadn't actually saved them yet by payment of the redemption price. He was paying it while on the cross. When he's ridiculed, he said he's the Son of God. Let God save him. Deliver him. Let him come off the cross, then we'll believe. All of the shame that is put upon the spotless Lamb of God. Why is it that he doesn't revolt and say enough is enough? Because if he were like you and I, the slightest of words would elicit such a response. The difference between us and him is that he is possessed of a perfect love for his bride. And he would endure the insults of wicked men while enduring the wrath of God for wicked men on the cross. Which wicked men? Well, if you're a believer, you. Everyone upon whom God has set His electing love, Christ was making payment for. Why? Because He loved them. Brethren, if this is true, that He loved us such that He gave Himself to wash us from our sins, then surely as we eye Christ, we have a fortification against everything that would threaten our peace. For Christ is our peace. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? The short answer, nothing. Christ has secured the assurance Notice this, he hasn't secured the love of God. He secured to us the assurance and enjoyment from our perspective of that love. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself to be the propitiation for our sins. Brethren, the love of God in Christ Jesus is displayed in His death, which applied to us, cleanses us of all the defilement, of all of the sinful pleasures, of all of the wickedness that we've committed and are. Through Christ we are washed, cleansed, and now made beautiful unto God. Having heard of this washing, for just a moment, See the misery of those who are without it. Think for a moment, perhaps here in this room, someone who's hearing of the washing of sins away by the blood of Christ and yet aren't washed themselves. And they think through their own ignorance, whether young or old, that they're going to figure it out. That they're going to be a better student, they're going to be a better parent, they're going to be a better child, they're going to be a better spouse, whatever it is. Maybe a better churchgoer, a better reader of the Bible, a better one who prays and all these things. And somehow I'm going to cleanse myself and make myself presentable unto God. When in the end, if this is their reliance throughout their life in this world, the last day shall show them what God thinks of even their pretended righteousnesses. 
And for those of you who are cleansed, this ought to lead you to pray earnestly that their own eyes would be open to see something of the filth. And this is difficult for us because when in our children, we want to apply instant relief. But in fact, there's often the case they need to sense the vileness of their sins. Not us keeping back the way of cleansing, but that they should come under the reality of their odious sin before God so that they would see that the only hope is the blood of Christ. Pray for this, but pray as the Lord would show them the greatness of their sins, the Lord would also show them the greatness of the Savior. And finally, if you've been washed by Christ's own blood, then you've been washed. You've been cleansed. You stand as one redeemed and reconciled, truly clean in Christ, in Christ alone, from your defilement before the Lord, which means this. You, through Christ, have the ability by His grace to draw near to the enjoyment of God. You don't have to be as Adam and Eve who fled. You don't have to be as those who flee away. But you can come by Christ to the full enjoyment of God increasingly in this life with the expectation of the life to come without end. Christ, in His own blood, has given us these benefits, all of which come from His own love to us. Well, brethren, would you stand with me for prayer? God in heaven, as we think on these words, we come to ask that you would make us both to feel something of the solemnity, but also of the sweetness of such love from Christ that He was made to be a curse for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, that He was made to bear our shame that we may bear His beauty, that He was made to bear his, our sin that we may bear His righteousness. Oh God, would You please draw us each to see what is ours in Christ, and Father, as we prepare now for the Lord's table, we ask that You would come still with power that as the Word has been preached, the Word may also be displayed to the nourishing of the faith of Your own and to the confirming of Your love to them and also to the quickening of others who will look on, some believers, others unbelievers. They would see what a great privilege it is to know Christ and that the same Gospel which is preached and enacted through the sacrament would come with power to us all. So bless us, we pray, forgiving our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen. As you're seated, we come then to the fencing of the table, which we do because the Scriptures warn us that we would not eat and drink unto damnation. Because the sacrament is, of course, a rich and blessed and blessing ordinance and so it's understandable when it is that we say, I want to come. As children, we see parents come and we want to come. Perhaps as church members, we see others come and we want to come. But there is, of course, a warning.
because as with any aspect of God's covenant, there are blessings and there are curses. And the blessings are enjoyed for those who by faith receive them. The curses are upon them who, though experiencing the outward, take up not the inward by grace. So in 1 Corinthians 11, there is this testimony in verse 26, As often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now as we think on that, it's helpful to characterize the difference through the lens of Scripture. So there are hypocrites and deceived ones. There are also true believers that perhaps yet haven't come to the ability to exercise self-examination or to understand what it is to discern the Lord's body in the sacrament. And still others through other circumstances of providence who are unable to come. But we think presently of those who should come. Who is it that should come? Well, there are basic things like being a church member in good standing and so on and approved by those who have the keys of the kingdom and exercise them in accordance to God's word. But we can see a characterization in 1 John chapter 1. What is it that characterizes one who is a believer, sound in the faith? Well, John presents us at least one perspective in chapter 1 and verse 4 and following. He says, These things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This verse helps us to see a few things about a true believer and one who falsely professes. A true believer is one who will walk in fellowship with God. Not just say that they'll walk in fellowship with God, but notice in verse 5, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. There's God's purity. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, who is pure and light, holy, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So we can say the right things, we can acknowledge the right things, but if our lives are actually in discord with God, there's the evidence of a false profession. And so he goes on, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, which John has introduced earlier as he's writing to us of Christ Jesus. And he says that your fellowship may be with us, and our fellowship is with, as he says in chapter 1, verse 3, the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. There's the fellowship. 
And so there is a real, sincere walking in fellowship with God, walking as He walked. But this doesn't mean that the true believer is sinless. In fact, John, in the same breath as it seems, says, And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. So we don't say, well, I I don't have that perfection of holiness, so I don't come to the table. No. We say, I am professing faith. All those other things are true. I've been approved by the session and other such things. But in addition, there is a real walking with God in Christ. And when it is that I find, oh, the prick of conscience, what does that do in me? Notice verse 9. If we confess our sins, there's a mark of grace. The confessing, the saying the same thing about our sins as God does. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brethren, for those of you who are approved by the session, members in good standing and so on, to come to the table, keep your eye on this, that it is not your perfection that calls you to this table, but rather it is your Savior with whom you have fellowship, whose blood cleanses you from all sin. It is not dependence upon your personal righteousness, but upon your personal Savior. And it is as you confess your sins, you have this further assurance that He forgives your sins. And yet, as John opens up more fully the rest of his epistle, the more that we live upon Christ by faith, the more it is that He actually works within us strength against sin. And so this works together in the true believer to enjoy the things of Christ. And so the Lord's Supper as a sacramental meal given to us to feed our souls and to feed us by feeding us Christ to be received by faith is for His true believing people who depend upon Him, who walk with Him, and yet when they sin, they are brought to look again freshly to Christ. And notice the language in verse 7. The blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. He washed us with His blood and His blood washes us still from all sin that we commit against Him. So in a moment, the communicants will be invited to come to the Lord's table in the singing of Psalm 116. And so if you turn with me then to Psalm 116, we'll sing together there from verse 7 through 14 in the tune